at law school, corporate clerkship recruitment is considered to be especially demanding. Some of the dedicated lawyers who have survived this vicious process are part of an elite squad known as Allens. These are their stories. This episode of Allens Confidential is produced on the land of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri peoples. We recognise the traditional owners' continuing connection to land, waters and culture and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. Welcome back to another episode of Alan's Confidential. My name is Will. I'm a disputes lawyer from the Sydney office, currently on secondment at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service. As always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Caitlin, who is a lawyer in the technology, media and telecommunications team here in Sydney. Well, not everyone's path to law is the same, and nor should it be. On today's episode, we're looking into the concept of contextual recruitment. How important is it to understand an individual in the context of their educational, cultural and socioeconomic background and their life experiences? So this episode, we're taking a look at some exceptional stories and seeing how Allens is addressing the industry-wide challenge of identifying determined, resilient outperformers from many different backgrounds in graduate recruitment. Today, we're joined by two very special guests. We have Grace Stalls, our head paralegal in the Allens Sydney office, and Manreet Singh, our early careers national manager at Allens, based in the Melbourne office. So guys, it is a customary tradition of guests on the program to talk about your favourite podcast before we kick off ours. So Grace, I might throw to you, are you listening to any podcasts at the moment? What's on your playlist? I am an absolute diehard She's on the Money fanatic. Girl boss. So... For those of you who don't know, you should know, She's on the Money is essentially a conversation with two girls who seem like they're just your girlfriends about basic personal finance, which is very apt and relevant for me, who has the financial literacy of a potato, but I'm slowly getting there. (laughs) I'm learning about my investments. I'm learning about my savings. It's been fab. So that's what I've been listening to lately. Does that um, teach you what the stock market is should i it be does. should i be picking up on this you at should. this stage if you're if you're not on it you definitely should because i don't know victoria divine just unpacks things so neatly and i now understand everything i need to know about investing okay i need to get onto this downloading that after this app and uh manreet uh do you have any favorite podcasts as well Look, I've got to say I should take a leaf out of Grace's book. I'm listening, well, the most recent podcast I listened to was one of the Australian finance podcast episodes, which sounds really boring in comparison to what Grace has just said. (laughs) Um, I'm not a huge podcast buff, admittedly. But um, the, this episode I listened to was about growing a brand on social media and side hustles and things like that, which I found pretty interesting and resonated. That sounds very cool. I've always wanted to have a side hustle, but I feel like it would be in something very tragic like felting. or <laughs> like I've, I've, Arts and I've, crafts related. Exactly, like a little Etsy shop. <laughs> um, they, they sound like great podcasts and, and very informative and, um, and things that I definitely should be turning my mind to at this stage in my life. Or something I should definitely already know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> my mid-20s. Grace, to start with, you are the head paralegal in Sydney. For those of our listeners following along at home, what does that mean? So the Allens offices nationally resources paralegals who support our legal team with any kind of tasks that they need. And so my job as head paralegal is to manage the Sydney and Brisbane team of around 50 paralegals. So helping those guys um, effectively cater to whatever the legal team needs, which sometimes is a bit chaotic and sometimes not mostly chaotic, but yeah. Yeah. So for most people, uh, I suppose, at, at, at your stage of, of a career um, who, who are also studying at the same time, 
managing 50 people and <laughs> a major law firm, um, the demands are, are not naturally something that people would come up against. How do you manage that? It's, yeah, look, it's not something that came naturally to me and I'm still definitely working on trying to be, I suppose, a, a good leader for um, paralegals who are essentially my peers as well. Um, but I think all you can really do is just be yourself and just be honest and upfront. Everyone gets gets the difficulty of working under time pressure. So I think, yeah, slowly getting there. Yeah. I can imagine it's very demanding and like herding cats at some point when there's like <laughs> yeah. 50 students who all have exams and holidays and oh, things coming up. Absolutely. That's the other thing. You don't really want to be like mean to your friends either. So I yeah. kind of can't crack the whip too harshly when people are slacking. I'm kind of like, guys, come on. You really need to like tick it up a bit. But <laughs> no, you're the, you're the people's head paralegal. Um, <laughs> you heard it here, guys. <laughs> so to jump back a few years though, how did you come to the law? Was it something you always wanted to do? So I came to the law in a bit of a different pathway to most people. I, in high school, always knew that I wanted to do law, weirdly. I really loved debating, really loved English. That was always kind of my thing. I remember driving past UCID and being like, yeah, those sandstone buildings, like that's me in your tent, which is super nerdy and lame now. <laughs> no, we love that. Shit with stars. <laughs> Probably started to take this a bit more seriously in year 11 and 12. And I was having, I guess, a lot of ongoing kind of family issues. And I ended up dropping out of high school in year 11 and doing a TAFE diploma in journalism to get into law school instead. So from that, I realized I did not want to be a journalist. I have no interest in in dealing with people's real issues. <laughs> I have interest in dealing with people's commercial issues. <laughs> and, um, so fast forward, I got into UTS law and I'm doing social and political science with law um, in my final year now, writing my thesis next semester. And here we are. Wow. So how did that initial experience spark your your kind of journey into a pathway that traditionally school finishes go straight to uni? How was that navigating that path? Yeah, it was it was a really tough period for me because obviously going to law school was something I always really wanted to do and being oh, I felt like I was really set back by dropping out of high school and that was really hard for me to navigate. I think the overarching reason I kind of wanted to come to law school, I should probably mention this, um, I had a volunteer lawyer from the Welfare Rights Centre help me access youth allowance on Centrelink when I was previously rejected. And at that stage, I was kind of experiencing a bit of homelessness when I just dropped out of high school and really needed that income support. Um, and this lawyer helped me take Centrelink on and I ended up getting my youth allowance. Yay, happy days. Mm. But I think that really solidified um, my interest in law by seeing how it could, I suppose, really transform people's lives. Um, and then I think the setback of dropping out of high school kind of felt like I'd failed in a way that dream, even though I'd overcome so much and I'd finally thought I'd made it to have that other setback. It was like, wow, you know, life just doesn't stop. It keeps going. Mm. And I think getting into TAFE was also a bit of a blow because I felt like that wasn't um, I suppose as prestigiously looked upon as going to high school and then going to university, which is a bit snooty and weird to say aloud. It's really important, I think, to to recognise and and hear stories from people that don't take a, a traditional path. Also, because um, these are the kind of resilient outperformers that usually uh, go very very far, and. Um, that's case in point sitting right in front of us, one of the most amazing head paralegals we've ever had. So, Will, 
Were you going to ask Grace a little bit about uni? Yeah. So obviously transitioning to uni is hard for, for many students. It's a huge culture shift. Often people move out of home or move into the city. So what was transitioning to uni for you like? Obviously you've just touched on kind of what the process was in getting into it, but what was kind of, you know, going back to first year, what was that experience like now in a university environment and having, you know, some experience of the legal system already uh, under your belt? Yeah, it was, it was really, really tough. It was, I think the hardest part for me academically was not having just come off exams. So TAFE was much more laid back than the HSC. So mm. I didn't have that kind of preparation going into it. And I suppose personally, from a social perspective, I really felt like I needed to prove myself to my friends and family because I did drop out of high school and, you know, I did make that decision. So going in, I had this like really high expectations of myself academically and that I was going to be, you know, captain of the mooding team. I don't know, do all of these things, president of the law society. And then it kind of didn't work out that way. And my grades were very average and probably below average. And I was really freaking out. I kind of had a moment at the end of my first year where I thought I would even drop law because I just thought I couldn't actually do mm. it. Um, I think I was very lucky to have a strong network of friends by my side who really helped me through, even though we were all kind of failing our first year together, it was still just nice to have that shoulder to lean on. Mm. Um, and I think as well, something that I've always think I've been quite good at is reaching out to people. Um, and I guess when you come from an underprivileged background, you kind of need to be a bit pushy and ask people for help. Um, and I've never been afraid to do that. So I think just asking the right people, being really open about needing support mm. really did help me a lot in my first year and eventually get better marks and settle into uni a bit better from then on. Yeah, yeah that's, that's so true. I mean, it, it it's just really clear that a lot of the time you kind of overlook in those first few years what importance friends have in that, you know, you view it in a social sense and not in a sense of like, these are the people that are going to be able to get me from where I am now to, you know, my first grad job or, you know, and stay with me for, you know, many cases for the rest of your mm, life. Yeah. And I think- being proactive in the way that you said also is able in reaching out to, you know, other people, whether it's recruiters or reaching out to, you know, companies that come onto campus also makes such a difference, even though it seems like quite small steps at the time, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think a girl um, or a woman, I should say, who actually introduced me to Alan's and suggested I should apply to work here, went to my high school. And even mm. though we weren't friends in high school, the fact that I just reached out to her and was like, oh, we both do law. Would you like to get a coffee sometime in my mm. second year has not only forged what is now like one of my best friendships, but allowed me to essentially get here as well. So I think you never really know the connections that you have until you until you ask, until you yeah. kind of knock on those doors. Totally. Exactly. And everyone has a background that you don't know about and, yeah. you know, things that you know, an amazing amount of knowledge that if you just ask, you can find out. And I guess touching on that a little bit more, you mentioned that you were kind of introduced to the firm for the first time by friends. What was transitioning to working in law like? So did you work in law while you were at uni or was Alan's kind of your first foray into legal work? Um, so I started working in law before I started uni. I, um, I did my year 10 work experience with a criminal law barrister and again, just kind of cold called them and was like, look, I'm about to start studying law and I want experience. Let me work for you. I'll do mm. whatever you need. I'm a good worker. Um, and since then I've worked in a smaller family law firm. I've worked for a commercial barrister and now here, I think 
that legal experience has largely come from me just persisting and, and pestering people, um, <laughs> which I think is is really good. I feel like you should never, yeah, never be afraid of just calling people and being like, I saw your LinkedIn post and I think you're cool. Let's get coffee. Or yeah. mm-hmm. I think you're a great lawyer and I love this case you worked on. Let's chat about it. Mm-hmm. I think those, some of those random things that I thought at the time were completely like the most audacious things I've ever done actually got me so far and so much further than an HD on an assignment. Yeah. And 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 the thing is that once you're on the other side of it, even being a very, very junior lawyer, um, it's it's something that's always received so well when someone reaches out to you. There's never the reaction of like, oh God, I do not have time for this. Like yeah. it's just not, it, it's exciting when young people want to learn more about the law. Um, and um, so to anyone listening that's thinking about it, that is feeling that hesitancy that, that Grace describes, do it. <laughs> Um, when you, um, when you came to the law, was there ever that kind of hesitancy or self-doubt? Did that ever get to you in a way that, you know, nearly stopped you asking or doing something or applying for something? Honestly, all the time, all the time. I think imposter syndrome is a huge thing for me and a lot of women in law and men in law, but I never really truly believed that I think I could naturally do something Mm. and that it would always somehow be like a fluke or, you know, just an absolute coincidence that I got here rather than my own actual kind of hard work and merit as a person. I suppose dealing with, I mean, I still, I still struggle with imposter syndrome sometimes, but it's hard because when I applied for Allen's and went to apply for this job, I remember thinking, oh, I actually just don't think I belong in a top tier kind of commercial so you, environment. you effectively screened yourself out. Yeah, pretty much. I, I suppose I just didn't think that I would be the right cultural fit. I, I'm not kind of, I don't know, I feel like I'm a bit, bit of a bogan. I, I like the NRL, not the AFL. <laughs> I drink tinnies. I don't know. I just, yeah. I just wasn't sure if I would be the kind of the right fit for a place like Allen's. And then my friend who did work here was so lovely and so kind. I thought, oh, she can't be the only person in this huge firm that's that's this lovely and that's this laid back and chill. Then I was like, oh, okay, I better I better just give it a go. I'll throw my hat in the ring and see what comes of it. And obviously, here we are. Here we are. Um, but yeah, I think it just. I suppose I think it the the idea of imposter syndrome really just reflects people from underprivileged backgrounds being kind of told over and over again that they are not good enough and that they mm. are lacking in some quality that people who are not from that background mm. don't have. So for me, it's that maybe I'm a bogan and I have a bit of a rough accent sometimes, but on a more serious level, it can be the fact that, you know, ethnically I appear differently or, you know, things mm. like that. So I think it's it's a real problem for the industry trying to, I guess, overcome those hurdles. Yeah, absolutely. So, Manreet, this might be a good point to to get your insights. Lots of people think there's, you know, a, a typical candidate um, for graduate recruitment in law with certain cutoffs and, and you know, particular unis that they have to have gone to and, and work experience that they have to have had. Is that really the case? Look, absolutely not. And I think if it was, that goes against everything. We've just been telling students out at, on campus at universities over the last couple of months. Um you know, we we see a lot of candidates self-selecting out of the process um, pretty early on in in our clerkship recruitment process, and that could be on a number of things. Some of the examples that Grace spoke about, um, but also things like what university they went to, um, what their background is, or their upbringing, um, and the fact that we're a top tier firm. Like Grace spoke to her example of she almost didn't apply because we were top tier. 
And, you know, really we aren't that scary, right? Like (laughs) diversity is so important. And to your point around, you know, cutoffs and weighing certain aspects of the application and viewing things differently, we absolutely don't have any type of cutoff or view anything in any more favorable light than the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, We certainly do take a holistic view of every application. And yes, we do sit there and read each and every application. Um, I often get asked, do we have some type of software that picks up on certain words in CVs and cover letters? No, it's me and my team reading every application. And that's really what's going to get you through because you need that human element to read and consider the application as a whole and the context sitting around each candidate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it sounds like it, it's quite a, a complex dilemma to really pick up on some of those contextual um, insights that that might uh, inform recruitment. I know you mentioned that you that you sit there, you know, as humans and, and look at each piece of paper holistically, each application. But are there other measures that Allens are using to um, go beyond kind of our own human? capacity to to pick up on certain metrics? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, like I said, we don't want everyone to look the same or to have the same background or pathway into law and making sure that we have a cross-section of diverse educational, socioeconomic, gender, cultural, et cetera, different backgrounds is really important in building that talent pipeline. So one way that we do this is by using a contextual recruitment system in our clerkship recruitment process, which is called RARE, um, and that really helps to level the playing field for all of our candidates. So a bit about the the tool. So Allens was the founding partner of RARE in Australia in 2016, which we're really proud of. Um, It is an optional part of our application process, and it allows recruiters to understand a candidate's achievements and experience in context. So To dive a little bit deeper, the system essentially is measuring two things. The first one is disadvantage, and the second is academic outperformance at high school. So if a candidate was to opt in to the recruitment system, information is collected at the application stage on various different data points. So things like your educational and financial background, um, an indication of any personal circumstances that you had. So for example, caregiving or care receiving, um, among a lot of other categories. And the data is then used to screen candidates in. And I think that's the important point. We're not using the tool to rule anyone out. So the way that we use it in our process is that we screen all of our applications as we normally would. We don't even look at the rare data at this point Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're viewing each application independently. Once we've done that, we then have a look at the rare data so Manreet, I remember when I completed the rare application as part of my pathway to Allens, some of the questions that I think I answered were how many hours I worked in my final year of high school, um, if I'm from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander background, caregiving responsibilities. I also mentioned um, an underlying medical condition that I had, which is kind of relevant to my grades. And I think I also mentioned an a family circumstance, which really like attacked my grades in my second semester of first year. Mm. And I think that was really helpful for me because it explained why I had this pocket of kind of terrible uni marks, which were just not very good, but they were like, there was a basis in those. It was because I was experiencing other kinds of hardship at the time. Um, and I suppose that just for Manreet and for the careers team at Allen's allows them to see why, like see why that's happened and kind of shows that it's not, it's not really on me. Yeah, absolutely. 
And we see that all the time. Well, quite often, Grace, like you're certainly not the only one that has certain circumstances that makes you totally flop one semester at uni. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why we can't have cutoff of grades, because that's obviously going to have brought your WAM and your GPA down. Yeah. But by allowing us to have that context around what was going on in your life just makes us make a more, allows us to make a more informed recruiting decision when we're reviewing all of our applications. Yeah, because I can imagine that if you were looking for only perfect marks, uh, sure, you you would get academic high achievers, but um, how much would you lose in people with real life experience and serious levels of resilience? And and we need that and and it, it makes for a better firm. Definitely. So with Rare, I mean, I, I'm not super familiar with the tool myself in that Maybe that's, you know, part of the process in that, you know, students might not know it's affecting their decision. So, Mary, do students know if Rare is helping or, you know, the application? Is it something where students are told whether it might help or detract from their application? Or is it something that's kind of going on in the background from your end and isn't as visible to the students? Yeah, so it definitely is going on in the background. Um, so, as I mentioned, it's optional for the student to opt into the rare tool. Um, and we only use it once we've done that initial screen, as I mentioned. And then beyond that, it really is just a screening in tool. So we don't even share that information to the interviewers. Mm. So no partners or lawyers or buddies or anyone else in the process um, has that information. And for a couple of reasons, the first one is obviously confidentiality. The candidate's sharing some pretty personal details with us. And the second one is to rule out um, or prevent any bias in the interview process as well. Because I imagine if, you know, someone's gone through quite a lot of hardship, reading that could lead to some bias um, in the interview process and beyond. Yeah, that's that's good that it doesn't kind of stop at the tool, but, you know, you're looking at how how it might impact human decision-making beyond that and, and limiting it to only being an opt-in advantageous value-add tool rather than something that could potentially detract from a student's application. Um, that's really interesting. Grace, you say that your past is your secret weapon. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think my past, um, the I suppose the adversities that I've overcome to get where I am, So, for example, I've experienced homelessness and family violence, and those things are really, really awful things, but unfortunately really common prevailing realities growing up in Australia. And I think it's my secret weapon because when you are able to capitalise on those hardships and turn that into resilience, it really is a unique thing that you have that no one else has. So in a weird way, it's kind of the best possible competitive advantage that you can have in a workplace. But also as as a human being, you are able to just relate to others in a way that I think you, you might not be able to if you, if you didn't have that kind of shared adversity that you would overcome with other people. So I think practically it, it helps me get the last bit of work out when I'm working late on a deadline, which is hard, but then socially and personally, it kind of just allows, allows me to connect with other people, I think, and really empathize, I suppose, with other people's difficulties. Definitely. And I think people a lot of the time when looking at corporate law recruitment and things like that overlook things like EQ or emotional intelligence or how important those things are in your career. Like every day in a corporate workplace, you're talking with 
other people, you're always working in teams. Often the more senior you get, you're talking with clients and those aren't going to be exactly the same type of person. And if you're someone who is, you know, like funny and relatable and human, those make you a far better lawyer and also like a, you know, a really interesting and lovely person to be around. And I think people often overlook that in their skills when, when considering whether they, you know, would fit in, in a corporate workplace. And I know that your story must reflect lots of people listening at home that they've had disadvantages growing up in their background. Manreed, I mean, when we're looking at diversity in the workplace, we've talked about how we're using different tools to try and increase it. But from your perspective, what is the importance of having more people from backgrounds like Grace's or more people from diverse backgrounds in a workplace like Alan's? In short, diverse people are going to bring diverse perspectives to the table as well. And that's really what we want to see. You know, we say it time and time again, every year, we don't have a cookie cutter type. We don't want candidates to feel like they need to conform or to a certain way or, you know, act or look a certain way or present themselves in a certain light in interview. And we can actually pick up on that when we're going through the recruitment process. So really, we just want candidates to be authentic and true to themselves and own their story. Um, You know, like Grace said, her past is her secret weapon, like own it. This is authentic to you. And that's really what we want to know and that we want to get to know you. Grace, for you, I mean, on a personal level and on a level as someone who works in this firm, while, you know, we're trying different tools and and it's not a problem that's fixed overnight, what would it mean for you to have a more diverse workplace or a workplace that's trying hard to try and, you know, overcome some of these challenges that are, you know, industry-wide? I suppose personally... On a day-to-day level, it's nice to just have people who share your values and share, I suppose, similar experiences to you. That just makes it an easier place to come to work every day, right? But Mm. then in another way, you also want the profession that you're a part of to actually reflect the people that it represents. Mm, So I think that being able to get more diversity in the legal profession at a commercial level, in family law, in criminal law, I think that that just makes for ultimately a better society, which is why we all started law, right? Like it it just necessarily will give better outcomes for our clients, no matter what part of law we're in, if we have a diverse workplace representing those interests. I, I totally agree. And exactly as you say, the more people that we get in, in companies like these and, and companies across Australia that are reflecting the people that they're helping, the better that legal advice is going to be. And you know, we can inch closer towards a more perfect uh, profession. So thanks both uh, for your time. That was an excellent episode. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure Caitlin, you did too. And for being so honest and forthcoming about your story, Grace, and for your insights, Manreet. And thank you all to those listening at home, on the train, wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next time.